podcast for giftware and specialty food artisans who want to work smarter, earn more, and live better. Hosted by Stefa Normantis. Hi, this is Stefa. Thank you for listening to Artisans Who Wholesale. I have not connected with Lisa Moselvitz until today, but I have heard rave reviews about her efforts as the director of Archipelago. She's smart and really cares about our community, so I can't wait to talk to her. She's got a ton of different angles that she can come at with this. So the hard part of this conversation will be narrowing it to really the field of expertise that we want to focus in. So I'm excited about this. But let me give you a little bit of a bio for her. She is the director of Archipelago for 11 years. Her job combines her experiences of working in retail and nonprofit environments as Archipelago is not only a retail space, a store, a gallery, and online, but a program of the Island Institute as well. She's also a fine art photographer and has been taking images for 30 years with her photography being exhibited around New England and collected throughout the U.S. So I can't wait to connect. So hi, Lisa. Thanks for coming. Hi, Stefa. It's fun to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. Well, I grew up in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, and I've always loved color design and fashion. That's sort of the way I first saw myself in the arts as an artist. I worked in retail in high school at The Limited, which those of you who might remember that store. Um, And I wanted to go to school for fashion, but that really wasn't an option. So I I went to college um, and I got a degree and I used that degree in Maine working in the nonprofit world. And when I had started my family, I stepped back from that work to work retail again. So I began to develop this portfolio of experience that had both retail and nonprofit experience in it, which was a pretty, pretty unique combination. Mm-hmm. And how did you end up connecting with Archipelago? Well, it's funny, but it's taken me a long time to finally have a career in the arts. In 2008, I started here at Archipelago, and I'd been managing a store in Rockland, a retail store that the then director of Archipelago knew me from. And she also knew that I had a nonprofit background. And so that was really appealing to her because it's that unique combination that really made me stand apart as a candidate. And so she asked me to apply. And it was really exciting because I had been walking into the store and just really drawn to the handmade nature of the items that had been sold. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about it and your role there? Sure. So Archipelago is an economic development program of the Institute. And the Island Institute's a 35-year-old nonprofit that works with island and coastal communities. It's a community development organization. Mm -hmm. So we have a number of different programs that we do to engage with communities around the coast and on the islands. And one of them is economic development. And that's really where Archipelago fits into their mission. The store started in 2000 as really a main street, mainland venue for island artists to have access to a broader market other than just on their islands. 
Um, so that was really uh, the genesis of how Archipelago came to be and what the vision was when it started. And since then, um, so since 2000, we've generated over $2.5 million in sales income back to Maine Island artists and makers, and that's where the economic development program piece comes in. And what's your role there? As the director, I've really been rounding out what it means to be Archipelago. We're a retail space. We're, we have a website and a gallery. So I've been looking at growing those aspects of the business. I've instituted a formal gallery space that coincides with Arts in Rockland and the big gallery scene that's happening in Rockland these days that didn't exist before I came. And I've grown our website so that we can promote, you know, further reach other markets and customers for our main makers and artists. And then I've really seen the need for artists and makers to learn more about what it means to run a business. Mm-hmm. Artists, uh, and, and I can say this because, because I am one, <laughs> but it takes different skills mm-hmm. to do art and make art and be creative than it does to run a business. And so it's really been important to me to begin to offer workshops and skills and mentoring pieces to artists as I see the need arising. So I started doing that in a very small way. Six years ago, we just started speaking one-on-one with conversations and supporting artists and and some of the challenges that they were facing, doing marketing or um, approaching another retail store or pricing or packaging, all those things that can be, if you're an artist, can be a little intimidating and somewhat opaque in nature. But they're essential. They sure are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely the hard part. So tell me in your role, what is the part that you're loving? What's the energizing part of your work? Right. And I guess I just wanted to mention one other thing. So my role is changing a bit now, and I'm stepping away from some of the retail management aspects of Archipelago. And Francis Holgate is stepping into that piece. So I'm really developing the artist's mentoring piece, the gallery, and the website. So just so that your audience knows that. Mm-hmm. And gosh, the most energizing part of the job would be really... I, I love helping artists uncover their voice as well as guide people through the process of being an artist, both day-to-day and long-term, and help them really find out who they are and what their purpose is, not just in their career, but what are they trying to say through living their life every day. And I love pulling together works for the gallery exhibits that's probably the funnest part. I, I really just do it on intuition. So I pull together things and artists and pieces that I really like. And then mm-hmm. I lay it all out in the gallery and I just work with it and make pairings and put things together. And boy, that's that's just such a fun thing to do. <laughs> I love doing that piece. <laughs> I can and, imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think the other thing I really love about my work is just being around creative people and creativity. I think that one of the most exciting things is seeing someone who is 
truly being themselves and sharing that vision with the world. I just think that's a really, a really neat thing. It's pretty neat. Tell me about the biggest challenge that you are seeing these days or working through. Gosh, I think, I think personally in my work, it would be probably not having enough time in the year to visit artists in places that I want to visit. I mean, we know that Maine has such a rich tradition of art and makers mm-hmm. and crafters that, and such a wide geography that, boy, that's, it's hard getting out to see everybody do everything. But I think for Archipelago, it might be a challenging thing is predicting trends and sales mm-hmm. and gallery interests and you know, developing our own voice as a retail store and, and how that works with what customers are, are wanting and needing. And luckily, since we do have such a rist, rich history of, of makers that there's not, a, there's not a lack of product and ideas and creativity. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of <laughs> sifting through it all and, and sorting it down. But yeah, that's, I, I want Archipelago to feel comfortable to anyone who wants to walk into the store, you know, whether they're looking to buy some soap or a fine art piece. And so it's really just creating that environment that's important. Fantastic. So let's dive in because I can't wait, Lisa, to really dive into what you've distilled over the last number of years. So tell me from your angle, what are some of the elements of a good product in your shop? Sure. And this is this is the fun part, right? I mean, it has to be well-made first off. Someone has to really know and understand the materials they're working with and, and craft it really well. Having a good, good price point for whatever their customer is for their particular item. I really appreciate if it speaks to what the Island Institute is about, what Archipelago is about. We're in Rockland, so the ocean and the coast is really if not in the forefront of shoppers' minds, it's kind of in in the air, right? You can smell the salt. And so it needs to relate to the coast and uh, the natural environment, working waterfronts, uh, and that sort of idea. We, we try not to overlap items too much. We only bring in so many soap makers unless they're doing something really different. So we we try to keep things really clean and and mm-hmm. have a good voice in the store. I, I guess sometimes it's it's hard to break into a shop, you know, for soap makers and mm-hmm. whatnot, because there can be a lot of product that's already in the market. Mm-hmm. So we we not only work with wholesalers, but we do consignment as well, and mm-hmm. that allows us to try things, which is which is really fun. So then we can we can have a little bit more flexibility and not commit to doing wholesale right off the bat. Terrific. Now, that's a, a competitive category, whether it's jewelry or soap making. Some of those are really crowded and there are so many good ones. It's tough to make that final choice. It is. It is. And, you know, out of respect to the to the vendors that we already have in the store, we don't bring in new, you know, new soap makers per se unless they're doing something I think that's really different that sort of reaches a new customer. Now, speaking of that uh, new product, how do you evaluate them and what's your top sources for finding them? 
you know, first of all, for our store, you you have to live in Maine and make your work in Maine because that's that's our commitment. And we try to, even if something is designed by a Mainer but printed elsewhere or made elsewhere, we try not to carry it. And that's our intention and that's our mission. There are some exceptions, of course, books mm-hmm. and some Island Institute apparel and whatnot, but we really try to have the product be made here. And we look to Maine Made to, you know, with their standards as well to help us sort through some of some of those issues. And then um, that being said, some of the other aspects are quality and uh, price point, and like I mentioned already, overlap with other artists. And we also, when we're doing wholesale, we really want to know that they're going to have the ability to produce what we need and be ready to meet our orders and reorders. Mm -hmm. Because being a seasonal business, if we're trying something new, say in May and June, we might not really know how well it's going to do until middle of July, Mm -hmm. end of July. And then we might be able to see, gosh, this is going to be a really big selling product. And, you know, it's hard to then go to the vendor in August and say, oh, we need a hundred more of those (laughs) because they're so great. Mm -hmm. Um, So we try to have a conversation with wholesalers that are new to us. Gosh, what's your production look like? How much Mm -hmm. lead time do you need? Um, Because that becomes really important. And forecasting isn't always always the easiest to predict. How do you handle drop-ins from makers? Oh, that's a really good question. So this becomes a balance of really wanting to encourage artists, but also I really don't like drop-ins probably between July and middle of September. We don't have the time to meet with everyone. And it's not only that I don't have the time, but But I'm wasting the vendor's time as well. If I know we're not looking for soap or jewelry or pottery, Mm -hmm. if I know I don't need that anymore. And so if we if we have the ability to screen that out beforehand, that's it's really important. So we have a process of submission form that we send out to people and really ask that the initial contact is through email mm-hmm. so that we can see what your, what your product's about, get a sense of the pricing. And again, if you're not overlapping with somebody that we already have in stock, that's pretty important. So I really don't like walk-ins. That being said, I also like to be encouraging of people that are trying and putting themselves out there because I know how hard that is. So um, I think it's really about knowing where you're going and what store you're entering and what's really important for the way to approach them, because it it is different with every retail store. Yeah, different needs, different uh, different markets and different products fit, and it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the product. It's more just, you know, is it the right time, right place? Exactly. And I'm just one person, so hopefully they don't take that as a, <laughs> oh, my product's you know, a disaster mm-hmm. and I can't do this anymore, that it, it really just might be, well, we already have other soap makers and keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Now, in your opinion as a buyer, how is how important is it for a maker to have a website? And what about Etsy as you're filtering potential new products coming in? Right. 
I think for me, it shows a level of professionalism, mm -hmm. but it's not a deal breaker if they don't have a website or if they're not on Etsy. But if they don't have those vehicles, it, it somewhat limits my ability to promote their work. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is, you know, if we're looking for photographs, for email blasts or descriptions of their product, or sometimes we're looking for gosh, is this pottery microwavable or dishwasher safe? And we haven't really had that discussion. Then we're kind of looking on their website if we have a customer in front of us. So we want to make sure that we're promoting you in the best way that you'd like. Mm -hmm. So we need, you know, those sorts of information. So you, by doing that, you help us give information to our customers and share your viewpoint and things like that. We also promote our artists quite a bit in the store and gallery and work hard to connect our customers with the makers through this information and material, especially when we sell a gift and people are, you know, wanting to make that connection themselves. I think that there's a great value and excitement around real people mm -hmm. and our neighbors making the gifts that we're giving mm -hmm. and, and sharing our love of Maine in that way. So if you don't have those things, it's harder for me to mm -hmm. do that. Great advice. We get a lot of questions from exhibitors who are starting in wholesale about buyers requesting exclusivity. From the perspective of you as a buyer, what's your take on that? What advice do you give? This, this is a really interesting topic, and, and it has a lot of different components, more than just geography, mm -hmm. really, because it could also... In my mind, it, I see it as who we overlap customers with. Like, for example, the grasshoppers right next door to us, but we don't really share too many customers. So if we're sharing certain products, I'm not really worried about that mm -hmm. so much. But, you know, the Farnsworth, who's also in town, we do share customers with them. So I, I tend to be really respectful of what they have in stock and not try to poach vendors and artists from them. So it's not only about, gosh, I want to be the only place in Rockland that sells mm -hmm. this, but where are my customers? Where else are they also shopping? And yes, there are certainly times when we say to people, we, we want to be the only people in Rockland that mm -hmm. are selling this. But I think it's really important to have a conversation with your uh, retailer and as a retailer with the vendors and try to be as direct and clearly communicating what expectations are. And I'd really just encourage people that have questions that are looking to resellers to begin to have those conversations. And, um, you know, we try to work with people so that it's the most successful for everyone because we, you know, we're, we're also supporting the creative economy. And we don't want to limit, per se, an artist's ability to make their income. So it's, it's really part of a bigger conversation. What, what kinds of things have you heard from vendors on this topic? I'm curious to know what else you've heard. The challenge for the maker comes when somebody who has asked for exclusivity is not meeting a minimum 
volume that maybe has been established. Maybe they started out as a great account, but now time is passing and it is starting to wane a bit. Mm. And there's been inquiries from the same area. So that delicate balance of you have a great relationship that you've enjoyed, but the volume isn't there and you have to be the steward to your business, but yet you don't want to give up this great relationship, but yet to be a good steward to your business, you really need to have that eyes wide open. And and so having that discussion of, all right, you know, we may have started here with the volume expectation, and now somebody else is asking me for it that might have a higher volume, and you may be selling less. It's that piece, or it gets sticky if they haven't mm. outlined what their minimum expectation of volume is, or, you know, it's that gets hard because there's real relationships there right. and yet there's the steward of the business and if their product isn't moving in a certain retailer that gets to be a struggle right yeah it's another just opportunity to to try to have conversations mm-hmm. um, and be direct as you can while respecting the relationships that mm-hmm. you've built yeah those are good good yeah. points And I think it's hard for someone who is just starting. They don't want to turn anyone down. So, you know, they're they're establishing new accounts. So they may not want to hold out and say, oh, the shop I really should be in is XYZ. And that Mm, and then, you know, running into that. So, you know, it's just the regular challenges of of business, but it can be hard to make that choice uh, when it's right in front of you. Yep, that's true. Uh, moving on to not just the product, but the packaging and sales materials. Is it ever just as important than the product itself? What are you seeing and what's your insight into that? Well, it's funny. This was kind of, this was an interesting question because I went out to the store and I looked around and we don't have a lot of products that are very mm-hmm. packaged, right? Um, which is good because that fits in a little bit better with our mission of, you know, sustainability and sustaining communities. But that being said, we do have, you know, body care and whatnot that um, have have packaging, of course. And it, of course, needs to be well labeled and have a great design and just say a little bit about, you know, visually about what your what your voice is and what you're trying to present in the marketplace to customers. So we have worked with new businesses where we've said, gosh, you know, it's hard to tell what the sense of these three hand creams are. Could you make that a little bit more, more easily seen by customers? So we do give feedback like that, but it's not something that we work with people a lot on, I think just because we don't have a lot of products with packaging. I could understand that. Um, I guess I'll just use body products again, that if you're, you know, at Hannaford and you're competing with 16 other hand creams, you probably really, really want to know your customer and what they're going to respond to visually and what they're seeking in their packaging, but we don't run into that too much. And, you know, it's interesting to think about some of the trends uh, as far as reducing plastic and, and you know, Rockland is, has banned single-use plastic bags, mm-hmm. um, which is great. And so I think that there's more of this type of uh, thinking that's working its way into consumers' mindsets, which is yeah. really great. And I know that there are different wholesalers and 
and vendors like Dulce and Ragosa that are really looking to reduce the plastic in their packaging. You know, people are going back mm-hmm. to glass and cardboard and paper. So, so it's, it's great. And we try to encourage our vendors to use those types of materials and use less, less packaging. You know, a great trend for makers to follow. It, it has so many benefits and as well as making that niche in the marketplace. Yeah, exactly. What are common mistakes that you see artisans and makers making? What don't they know that you wish they would? Right. I guess I think one of the really important things is be clear about if you want to be a business or not. And maybe maybe that's harder for me to see sometimes because we do both wholesale and consignment. But when I'm you know, I'm assuming that a vendor who is wholesaling, that they're really ready to run a business and they're looking to Mm -hmm. grow it. So if they have a product that's doing really well, they're doing their best to support, you know, quick turnarounds on orders and things like that. Because for me, if I, you know, only have a few, few soap makers, say example again, sorry. And I've committed, you know, and I've committed a certain amount of floor space to you as one of my few soap makers. But then, you know, come July and August, when we're really selling through things, that's that's a good good news situation, right? So I'm really hoping that you're ready to say to re to restock and refill and mm-hmm. and meet the volume because that's what we're ultimately trying to do. So I guess that's one thing that I would say. And another is uh, refresh your line, make new lines, add new scents and designs and colors a couple times a year, maybe, because Mm -hmm. we've had best-selling lines that just don't invest in new products. And after two or three years, you know, our customers are are kind of bored or they're waiting for that new new item from that, that vendor and it just doesn't show up. So they maybe they switch to some other vendor. So it's kind of a missed mm-hmm. opportunity, I think, if they're not refreshing their line very much. When I first started working here, there was a vendor that had been here since the store opened, and she hadn't done anything new since she came into the store, which was six years. And she wow. kept saying to me, yeah, she kept saying, well, gosh, my stuff isn't selling. I think you should move it. I think you should put it here. I think you should do it there. And, you know, and, and so we just like, because I was new, I just kept responding and and moving things around. And then finally I was like, you know what? I think it's really because there's nothing new and and everybody, everybody's bought this already. So um, that was, that was, you know, a learning, learning moment for me as well as, uh, you know, I let her know that that's what I thought that the issue Mm -hmm. was. And I think that that's, I think it's just really important. Um, And then along that lines, uh, sometimes my wholesalers don't let me know they have new products. And if I'm just working from like, I'll just run a report from my POS that says, okay, these are the top things that they've sold. I'll reorder them. But if they don't Mm -hmm. reply and say, hey, Lisa, guess what? We also have this, which is new and sort of, I think might work for your store. Um, that's mm-hmm. a missed opportunity too, because I, I really love to hear 
what artists and makers are um, bringing new to the table. So make sure you do that. <laughs> no, that's great advice. I And I think sometimes they think, oh, I have to build out a brand new line. Sometimes it's just a little tweaks or a little shift where it doesn't take a huge capital investment or, or whatever to get it off right. the ground. It's just something a little, sh- you know, a little shiny penny or a little shift that can make that oh, difference. Exactly. I mean, if you're making tea towels and you've had, you know, mussels and lobsters and, you know, chickadees for three years, maybe you just want to add fiddleheads or something like that. And Mm -hmm. that can make all the difference because it just brings more interest back to the classics that you've already been doing. Or in a different color palette. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the only other thing um, that I would say is to narrow your focus. When you transition from doing crafts fairs or other retail fairs to wholesaling, um, you need to focus in on what best products can reach your customers. So you may have to limit the things that you offer wholesale. And that's okay because that helps you really narrow in on what you're doing great. And I, you know, it's just funny. I think of this example sometimes. I had a woman who had sold cards in the shop one day and she was an illustrator and so we had some of her cards and she came in with bustiers that she had recycled that she had made into purses and I was just like Mm. wow that is such a pivot for a totally different customer and a totally different audience that I thought this is going to be interesting to see how how you pull pull this off because and that you know that could So refresh your line, but mm, maybe give it some careful consideration because managing two such different products within a business, I think can be really tricky because you have to understand different marketing and different customers and whatnot. So refresh your line, but narrow your focus. (laughs) No, those are two very different customers coming in for, for a product. On the flip side of that coin, Lisa, what are the most successful artisans doing? What makes it super easy for you to work with somebody? What do you just sigh like, oh, my God, they've totally got this uh, when you are working with an artisan? Right. Um, I mean, first and foremost, we all want to work with people that are friendly. Right. So be polite. It, It still surprises me how some people are running a business and they're not using their manners. You know, so, so be friendly, be polite, be open to feedback. It's a two way street, you know, good retailers really want you to succeed as well and and have a partnership in doing that. Um, So, so that's really important. And sort of getting back to the other aspects that we work on in mentoring, artists aren't often good at also bookkeeping as well as creative avenues. So really understanding the things that you're that you're good at and the things that you're not good at. And if you need help and support of your bookkeeping or your invoicing, get that support. So I think it's really exciting and refreshing when someone can do all those things that, you know, we have a few artists that are just there on top of it creatively. They are on top of the business and it's like, oh, yay, (laughs) we've got it all figured out. So that's that's a pretty (laughs) great blend. And what advice do you have for an artisan trying to get their product 
not necessarily in your store, but just in general, what do you, yeah, what do you recommend? I think, I think again, you know, we're talking about being friendly, being professional. You don't want to arrive at a shop cleaning your products and dusting them off and saying, oh, this was stored in the barn this winter. You know, I, I've actually had people do that. And I think, you know what? That's probably not what you want to be telling me right now. <laughs> um, so just be professional and be prepared. And um, uh -huh. I think that, you know, you guys in New England may do such a great job educating people about how to be retailers. I mean, how to approach retailers. And so I really thank you for all that you do around helping get vendors ready for market. I would say do some research about the store. So look at their website, drive by, look, you know, walk in as a customer, look around because, you know, as I mentioned, we're, we're ocean oriented and mission oriented. So if you come in with, you know, lumberjack pillows or something, it's probably not going to be a good fit <laughs> for us. So just do mm -hmm. a little research and, and whatnot. And, um, and then know who your competitors are. So if you're selling lumberjack pillows, who else is selling pillows that might be your competitors for that customer? And, and then just know sort of who else is showing up in your market and approaching stores with similar products and what prices are you trying to have on those products so that you can reach your customers. So be aware of price points and how you're, how you're showing up. And I know, Lisa, you advise and you're a great resource in the community for artisans. What tips and resources do you share? What books, apps? <laughs> what, do you, uh, um, what do you encourage people gosh. to check out? So, well, I mean, there's so many great resources for artists in Maine. And one of the things that I try not to do is duplicate um, other small business services that already exist. So if you... If you're wondering about that, you can certainly check out Maine.gov where there's different small business um, opportunities. I mentioned Maine Made before, of course, New England Made. And I mean, there's a couple other things that I follow. Art Business Institute has a great newsletter and offers some classes. Surf Plus is a New England-based nonprofit that helps support artists around insurance and emergency funds. I don't know if you know about them, but they're they're sort of yeah. a really interesting organization. Got a great little niche in I you know, I know they did some really transformative support for studios that had been damaged in Puerto Rico. Really just a backup piece. So um, I will definitely link to, you know, whatever you're mentioning, Lisa, in our show notes. But yep. that's a great that's a great resource for cursor artisans. Right. And obviously I I know that Hopefully you're, you're um, marketing your own work that you do around getting people made for, for um, wholesaling shows because that's so great. And I, you know, I'm not sure what Maine Arts Commission does for wholesalers, uh, more so for fine artists, uh, opportunities around grant making and funding and things like that. But people should certainly check that out. And gosh, I, you know, I, I found this book that I started reading and I haven't made my way through it still because it's so dense. It's called Imaginarium mm. and it's by a photographer, Claire Roberts. And it's really just about the creative process in mm. really big, big pictures as well as then it sort of breaks down everything of, okay, this is my vision 
for a certain mm -hmm. project? How do I make it happen? And it, it's kind of a neat piece for artists. I'm not sure how appropriate it is for makers and, mm -hmm. and wholesalers. But anyway, if people are interested in that, that's, that's a pretty fun one. Great. We'll definitely share that. Tell me what keeps you inspired when uh, things get hard for you. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love this question. It's so, it's so great because, you know, we all really need to come back to what keeps us going and, and um, maintain connection to ourselves. So I appreciate you bringing that up as part of a professional conversation. So I spend time in nature. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where my art comes from. I make photographs of flowers and discovering the beauty in small mm -hmm. landscapes all around me. And in my backyard really, mm -hmm. really keeps me grounded. And I, I hope that everyone who's running an arts business um, maintains a piece of themselves and their creative process for that real fun piece that keeps them engaged and inspired and doing what their vision is in the world. So it, it's just, that's something that's really important to all of us, I think. So that's my thought on that. <laughs> that's very well said, beautifully said. Uh, and how, how do you recharge? Is there a healthy habit that's important for you aside from immersing yourself in just uh, the small Mm. landscapes in the backyard or just being um, outside? Being outside is really important to me. I, I walk quite a bit. I live in Appleton, so either up the ridge or into the woods and, you know, just feeling <laughs> the wind in my hair and looking up at the sky, feeling the ground under my feet is just mm -hmm. are just things that really help me uh, stay connected and, and engaged. Well, as we wrap it up, is there anything else that we haven't mentioned that you would like to cover that uh, talks about whether the Island Institute or anything well, in your... Well, I guess um, I just mentioned a little bit about the Artists and Makers Conference that we produce every year. I started this, next year will be lucky number seven. So a number of years ago <laughs> with, with 12 artists here at the Island Institute gathered around a table just really having conversations about what do you need to understand about running an arts business. And this year we had 180 people at Point Lookout. So it's really grown because I think there is such a need for people to understand not only, gosh, how do I approach a retailer or how do I work Instagram, but, but staying connected to each other and learning from each other's stories is of such value. Um, we also do an inspirational track. Mm -hmm. So we have different artists come and speak about themselves. George Perlman spoke this year and, and we're reprinting that his speech in the uh, Institute's Island Journal, which is really was such an ex inspirational, exciting speech. So I hope everybody checks that out. But um, that happens every April. We just love bringing people together and connecting them around the facts and, and hard hard, uh, gosh, what is the word? Um, you know, the, the nuts and bolts, I guess, of running a business as well as, well as keeping yeah. it inspirational. So just wanted to let everybody know about that. Is there any advice that you would like to uh -oh, share gosh. Uh, <laughs> as we close? I, I don't want to give anybody <laughs> any advice. Um, I, I think, I, I mean, gosh, if I would say anything, it would just be trust your intuition, trust your own process and be your best self and be engaged and see where that leads you. And 
And when you need help, ask for help. And when you need support, ask for it. And that's all we can really each of us do. So that's all I would say. That's great advice, Lisa. So I think uh, I think that's uh, and would be nailed for nailed for somebody. So as we wrap it up, how should listeners get in touch with you to learn more, or uh, if they have questions about what the Island Institute does, how should they sure. reach out? Um, well, Archipelago has a website. It's thearchipelago.net, and you can certainly shop there. You can learn about what's in the gallery. You can see a little bit about our programming. We just launched a artist profile section. So we have a, an artist profile linked there on Susan Beebe, who's a Rockland artist. And that'll also bring you to the Island Institute site, which is islandinstitute.org, where you can learn all about the wide variety and depth of programs that the Institute is doing throughout the state. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for just spending the time with us and sharing what you've learned along the way. And from your angle on the Island Institute, I really appreciate the time. I know it's going to be helpful for a number of our listeners. So thank you. I hope that people coming to the Rockland area uh, will stop by and, and check out the shop when they can. It's certainly worth a visit. So thank, thank you. you. And and you know what, Steph, I guess I would just say one other thing is that I'm happy to have people send me an email, which you can find on our website and reach out because I'm not a scary person and would love to, <laughs> would love to hear about what people are working on and what needs they have. So that would be great. Well, that's a very thoughtful offer. So thank you again, Lisa. Thank you. Visit artisanswholesale.com for show notes with resources and links that help you work smarter, earn more, and live better. <laughs>